Welcome to the Minimum Effective Dose Podcast, where we discuss the art, science, and application of high-performance strength and conditioning. Join Mike Perry and Brett Jones as they share invaluable experiences as veteran strength coaches, lecturers, and educators. Welcome to Season 4 of the Minimum Effective Dose Podcast. What is up, everybody? Welcome to the second episode of season four. Gosh, we're in season four of the the MED, the Minimum Effective Dose Podcast. And uh, you know, I'm I'm here with my good friend Brett, as always, and uh, it's it's good to be back. It's fantastic to be back and to be in the year 2024, the year guaranteed to give you an election. <laughs> You said election, right? Election. Yes. <laughs> okay. Sorry. Um, anywho, <laughs> sorry. I mean, I'm a child. I'm a child. Um, yes. I heard that on a Comedy Central uh, commercial today, and I thought it was uh, it was uh, really funny. So the Daily Show Comedy Central credit, um, 2024. Is, so it's a good year. You know why though? It's it's a leap year, a real leap year. Does that mean you get to have a birthday this year? I I'm going to be 11. I'm very it's excited. Amazing. Um, uh, you know, I'm the middle son at this point. <laughs> and uh just asked my wife. But yeah, I got a real one this year, which is pretty cool. And and you know what I was thinking about just before we get onto our topic, I was talking to a friend the other day because I got diagnosed with, you know, with with my colon cancer like three years ago. There's a highly likely chance that on my last real birthday, I actually did have cancer based off of the timeline and the staging, which is really weird to think. So I was just thinking it's a very weird way to look at it. It's like, huh, my last birthday, I probably had cancer. And then this one, I don't. So I am going to, I'm going to rip up some athletic brewing. And uh, hey, if you guys want to sponsor our podcast, um, let us know. Uh, we can take care of it. But honestly, I'm going to, I'm pretty excited that uh, that that's going to happen this year. But uh, we're not talking about that, are we? Because no one wants to talk about cancer because we've already done that several times and we probably will again. But we're going to talk about uh, the joint by joint approach to training. And this is something that uh, has been around for a while. And Brett, um, wh where did the, where did, give us the origin story because you, uh, you're, you know, this a little bit deeper than I do. Well, I'm, you know, I'm a bit longer in the tooth uh, than, uh, than you are, uh, you 11 year old uh, young person. Um, yeah. So um, basically coach Boyle, and Gray Cook were having a conversation uh, in a uh, adult watering hole, <clears throat> and um, they were, um, I guess, just watering hole uh, would would suffice. Um, and they were they were talking about this concept, this, this joint by joint approach. That if we look at the body, um, we are essentially mobile and stable segments that are uh, alternated through through the system. Now, before we go any further, let's define that because I saw a recent social media post, and that's probably why we're doing this podcast today, where somebody said they fixed the joint by joint approach and wherever they, there was stable, they put mobile and it misses the entire point. So when we say a joint is mobile, that's usually a joint that moves in uh, all three planes. It's got a lot of mobility to it. When we say a joint is predominantly stable, it predominantly moves in one plane. So uh, when you look at it that way, the elbow, good example, moves in one plane. It flexes, it extends, right? Pretty simple. 
So the, the primary quality of that joint is stable. Your shoulder moves in every direction on all three planes. It is a mobile joint. So with that understood, uh, the idea that we're this, these alternating segments of mobile and stable joints gives us a really good theoretical starting point for looking at how the body functions and that when we run into a problem, we can usually go, not always, but we can usually go above and below an area where we're having a problem and see what's happened to those segments. Yeah. I mean, you know, and I think what people have to do is they have to take a little bit of a step back and understand it's a concept. It's not like a, it's not a prescriptive thing. And yes, like anything, there's context and we have to peel the onions back a little bit to make sure that we truly understand what we're talking about. Because yes, we, we, we do understand that. Yes. Knees, for example, should be mobile and they should be stable. Like we know that, like, and if you're, if you're going to argue against that, then maybe, maybe get into another field, but it's, you know, understanding really, like you said, what the joints, the joints are designed to do and what is their primary role, right? So look, you talked about the elbow, you know, the elbow and the knee are hinge joints. And in the world of jujitsu, our goal is to make it more than a hinge joint. No, seriously, right? So our, our goal is to make those joints move in an unnatural fashion so we can break stuff. So like when you think about even sort of how joints function and how they should not function, because I'm going to be honest with you, some of the best uh, people in the world that understand how joints function. What the hell is that, dude? Oh, you haven't seen the new uh, the the new graphics on 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 your Mac? Sorry, no. I just I just did like a peace sign and, and balloons just came up. What are you doing right now? Oh, you got fireworks. I got fantastic. Fireworks. Yeah. Anyway, so this will we're gonna have to post this because this is just getting ridiculous. But what was I talking about? Now I just got totally <laughs> distracted because you look like you're playing a game of laser tag. Um, what was I talking about? Mobile stable before it, we got crazy. Uh, yeah. Uh, conceptual. Um, where were we? Um, oh yeah, yeah. No jujitsu. Right. So yes. I was saying a lot of, uh, when it comes to joints and how they shouldn't work, go see a black belt. No, seriously. <laughs> and, and I'm not, and I'm not saying that, but like they're black belts that are really, really good. They know what joints joints should not do. What is not the normative range of motion for joints? They probably know better than most physical therapists, to be honest, because they have they have cranked on so many arms and legs and you know whatever over time. But look, just think of it that way, right? Like you know, you don't want your elbow to go past 180 degrees or whatever it is. Like, and if it does, it's not good. So yeah, we can understand that we want to have full flexion extension of the elbow. If you're hypermobile, you probably have more. And if we keep going, you're injured. So, you know, you just have to truly understand what the joints are, the primary role of the joints. Absolutely. And, you know, we we can get into a little more detailed conversation here about uh, some other uh, joint functions. But the 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 joint by joint approach, when we when we look at it from the standpoint that when we identify something as a stable joint, it usually moves in one plane. It has full range of motion. Uh, when uh, something is a mobile joint, it moves in all three planes. Um, so the ankle, the foot versus the ankle. When we bear weight through the foot, we want that arch to maintain its its stability, and we want it to be loaded in that one plane. The ankle circumducts, it flexes, it extenses, it inverts, everts. It moves in all three planes. So we want a stable foot, a mobile ankle. We already talked about the knee. It's going to be stable. The hip is going to be mobile. 
the low back is going to be stable. Uh, and it's you, you low back, and I, 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 I get the idea that the low back should have normal range of motion, but when you look at the design, the structure of the low back, it's not meant to move. You get one, maybe two degrees of rotation at each level. It's, and that's the, it's almost impossible to measure. It, it flexes and extends. That's the one plane. It's stable. Rib cage, um, mobile. Um, the scapula, uh, smart and stable. It rotates, right? Um, and then the shoulders, mobile. Elbow stable. Wrist is mobile. The neck is interesting in that um, we, we obviously want all of the, the mobility uh, there, there at the neck. Um, so, but we could get into that upper versus lower cervical conversation and, and how, how that distributes. But when you look at the body from this framework and, you know, my, my, my students over time got really tired of coming in and saying, oh, such and such is bothering me. And I'd say, well, that's not the problem. The problem is your ankle or the problem is your T-spine or your problem is your hip or, mm -hmm. you know, whatever. And, uh, they're like, yeah, I'm probably going to come in and complain about my foot and you're going to tell me it's my ear. You know, it's, it's uh, going to be something completely unrelated. So, but an easy example is the ankle and the knee or the ankle and the hip. When you stiffen up an ankle, you're probably going to throw the knee uh, under the bus. And if you don't throw the knee under the bus, you're probably going to stiffen up your hip in response. And just think about it from a walking standpoint, when you go to stride through and you can't stride through because your ankle is restricted, you change what's happening at your hip. Mm -hmm. um, if you're trying to squat and do things with a restricted ankle, are you going to throw your knee under the bus? So now we can say, okay, the, the knee's doing what it should. So let's go above it and below it. Does the hip still have the mobility it needs? Does the ankle still have the mobility it needs? And so that way we can start to have a better flow chart for uh, making good decisions and where we're going to take somebody's movement. Yeah. And, and I think, you know, the most important thing here is, is, um, understanding that we talk about, you know, mobility and stability. Um, and again, it really is a continuum because, you know, each joint needs a little bit of both. And, you know, you talked about the spine. Well, if you look at literally the shape of the facets in the lumbar spine, literally there's not as much room to rotate. And as you go higher up the spine, literally the, 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 the shape and the size of the facets change the higher you get up because we are designed to have more rotational ability upper, you know, the, the higher we go up the segment. So like, you know, yes, we want mobility. Like Brett said, we want the mobility in the lumbar spine, but we don't want too much. Right. Because at a certain point, it like hypermobility is not good either. And that's the other thing people need to truly understand about normative data on joints. It's like, when, when we talk about mobility, that's just, that's, uh, I look at that as sort of like availability of movement, right? What, what, what are the joints sort of currently capable of? But we have to talk about active and passive. And I think that's the one thing people really don't understand is when we talk about true mobility, there's the active and passive mobility. And I think what most people really are talking about when they talk about mobility is more of an active mobility, being able to get to those positions on your own without some sort of assistance prior, right? Or sort of, or, or some sort of glaring glaring huge compensation right so yeah. i think that's a that's sort of a way to to really look at that but um it's really about you know optimizing your own body but we still have to think again the primary roles the primary roles and and then if you again look at the shape of the bones and then look at the function of the muscles tendons fascia it's 
it's a pretty cool setup, right? <laughs> like, like I don't think I could put something together that good. But point being is, look, we we don't know much, but we know a lot about what good movement is and what not so good movement is. And I think if we dig in just a, a little bit further, the the joint by joint approach does not say if you flip one, you flip all. You you might flip one, you might get stiff at an ankle and therefore lose some stability at a knee. Um, so that that may happen, but you may stiffen up that ankle and actually come up with a neck problem because we're essentially a big X that goes bottom to top, top to bottom, and back to front. Because uh, sometimes when you get, and this is a this was a fun one from years ago when I was an athletic trainer, uh, somebody with chronic hamstrings. They had a big old trigger in their quad. So they kept pulling their hamstring because they couldn't, it, they kept running into this uh, restriction up front in the quad. So I quit treating the hamstring and I started, and I addressed the quad, no more hamstring problems. So we have to, once you have the basic theoretical framework of joint by joint and these alternating segments of mobile and stable joints, now you need to realize that you can uh, stiffen up your neck and actually come up with a knee problem. Um, it doesn't have to be the joint above and below. It can be way further down the line, up the line, front or back. And so, but even though that sounds like I just blew this thing out of the water and made things very complicated, I still follow the joint by joint approach to start making good decisions on where I'm going to go in addressing the movement for the person that I'm working with. Um, I was working with a new student uh, just uh, recently, um, history of some neck problems, congenital, um, nothing we're going to do to change it. Um, but man, opened up some T-spine mobility, massive change to movement uh, thus far. And I knew, you know, when the neck is challenged, we got to make sure the T-spine does what it's supposed to do um, with my hips. You know, I'm not going to have internal rotation. I've got square pegs and round holes. I'm going to I'm going to have to deal with my hips on an ongoing basis. So I make sure my um, I make sure the other ranges of motion in my hip are still good because it is a mobile joint. Um, and I make sure my ankle mobility is really good. Because if I keep my T-spine and my ankle mobility, my hip works things out. And so it gives me it gives me more ability to, uh, to to make good decisions. What do you mean? We should be making good decisions when it comes to health and fitness? Come on. <laughs> just just <laughs> grip it and rip it. That's hullabaloo. That's a, a, a underutilized word, by the way. Hullabaloo. Just, just throwing it out there. Agreed. It's like I told uh, one of my other coaches, I said, hey, I'll be there and Two shakes of a lamb's tail. He's like, what? I was like, never mind. Um, but, you know, here's the other thing too, talking about sort of compensatory movements and, you know, Brett saying, you know, something happened in your ankle, it could affect your opposite shoulder. Do not use that knowledge for fear-mongering purposes because if you do, you're an absolute a-hole, right? Um, no, seriously, because could it be? Yes, could someone's shoulder... And, and whatever's going on in their shoulder be a result of the opposite ankle. Yes. But don't forget about common sense. Maybe something happened to their shoulder, right? So don't, don't try to make things so freaking complicated and step back and go like, hey, how do you sleep? Well, I sleep on my right shoulder every single night and uh, I wake up and it's a little numb and my neck, you know, my fingertips are, uh, 
you know, are a little tingly and you're like, no, it's your ankle. It's like, well, no, 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 don't it. Maybe the ankle plays a role, but so you can't, don't play the guru. Don't like start making up this, like, you know, like crazy shit that it's probably this is probably that like, do your due diligence, understand normative data on how joints should and should not work and come to that result through science trial and error and sort of empirical evidence. Don't just live in it. Absolutely. It'll be like the reason why the reason why you have this is because you have a tattoo or there's someone saying that the reason why uh, you have a, a hip issue is because um, of your cell phone. Like people are going to get a little outlandish with this stuff. And I'm not saying that weird stuff can't happen, but like the fear mongering stuff that like that people, you know, you have flat feet, you're going to die. You you pronate, you will burst into flames every time you run. You know, when you sprint, you toe out and you're going to, your knees are going to explode. Like we need to stop that. We need to understand that um, it, it simply doesn't work that way. And and the fear mongering aspect that is as if you have this, this will happen. It might, or it might not, but just don't do dumb things. <laughs> and that really will help the end result. hundred percent. So uh, to get nerdy for just a few minutes, uh, what Mike's talking about there is the nocebo effect and uh, catastrophizing, or yeah, I think that's how you pronounce that, yeah. um, people's movement, making them actually fearful of movement. Um, nocebo is when uh, a good example of that is and catastrophizing or however you pronounce catastrophizing, that. Catastrophizing. Catastrophizing. Cat, cat sword fighting. Cat sword fighting. I love it. That's the word. I'm going to write that down. Hold on. Cat sword fighting. It sounds way easier to say too. So uh, bone on bone, you go to the doctor and, uh, you know, I love the fact that all of my test results come up in my, my chart and I can uh, very quickly find out what's, what's going on, but I have a little, a little different knowledge on, on some of this stuff than, than the average Joe because of my athletic training background and everything. Um, so when I read a, a radiologist report, I have a pretty good understanding of, of what they're talking about. If you don't have that base of knowledge and you read things like degenerative disc disease or degenerative joint, uh, dis, uh, you know, conditions and an arthritis, this and a bone on bone, that and lack of joint space here, there, whatever, um, you know, that's, an, um, that's, that's nocebo. That's, uh, catastrophizing the, um, the, the situation and you can actually make people fearful of movement. Mm -hmm. Um, what everybody should, um, uh, take a lot of comfort in is your body is a resilient machine that heals tissues heal that pulled muscle from four years ago. That's not a thing anymore. <laughs> now, it might still be a thing because you haven't changed the patterning um, or you've got a little scar tissue in the area or you haven't changed the patterning that resulted from dealing with that that injury. But those tissues healed. So pain is a pain is a complex thing. Um, and we can do a whole other podcast on pain science and 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 talk about it uh, in in different ways. Uh, but your body heals. Um, I was doing some, uh, online, some CEUs for my NATA research this year. And, um, you know, there's, there's some, uh, most people are somewhat familiar with the idea that, uh, if you run an MRI on a hundred people, um, who don't have a complaint of pain and you can pick a joint, <laughs> you can pick a joint, uh, you can talk about shoulders, you can talk about low back, you can talk about, you know, hips or knees. 
and you run an MRI on 100 people that have no complaints, a shockingly high percentage of those people will show things on an MRI or an x-ray that look scary. They have no pain. Um, so your, your, your pain experience is a, is a multifactorial thing. And again, I, I, to do it justice, I'd rather dive into that in a, in a, in a separate conversation, but back to this concept of, of nocebo and, and catastrophizing, like people hear these things and they get scared because mm -hmm. it sounds scary. Um, I, when I was in cancer treatment, I had a, um, MRI with contrast for my low back because my L3, L4 disc decided it was time to rear its ugly head. Um, and you, as a cancer person, you go in and they're like, well, we got to make sure it's not metastasis. So I got a very thorough, uh, eval and boy, you read that MRI and you're like, uh Oh, yeah, not good. I looked at that MRI and went, yeah, okay. That's about right. <laughs> but the number of discs uh, that are actually herniated that change can be in the 90 some percent just cause it showed up once on an MRI. doesn't mean it's still there. Yeah. So that the knowledge that your tissues heal, your body is resilient is something that I think everybody should hear. Um, you know, I, I've got mileage. I deal with things. I train. I didn't train today because my left hip was pinchy this morning. I don't know why. It, I, but Brett, uh, you work for FMS and you do your strong first guy. You should you should be perfect, Brett. Yes, I should be. Um, my <laughs> we'll we'll stop there on the I, I should be. Um, but yeah, I stuff happens. Like yeah. I don't actually know what's going on in my hip. I mean, I I have a an, an idea that I'm I'm I've got the same sort of structural stuff on the left as I do on the right. So you know, probably something's a little irritated. Um, oddly enough, I probably slept funny. And kind of pinched up some tissue, and so now today I'm a little pinchy. So I'm not training today. I'll do some. I'll do some foam roll and stretch, and kind of. I'll even take some Advil, uh, in order to just kind of get everything to calm down, and I'll go back to training. Um, I I I, I move with confidence. Um, I know what I should avoid, but I train and I move with confidence because I know my tissues heal and my body is resilient. Yeah. And, and you know what, I, I think a big part of, of being able to train like that is, you know, one as an individual and as a coach, who's, you know, I've you know played sports my entire life and still beat the crap out of myself. Um, I, I know what my body's capable of and I know sort of the recipe to keep it healthy. I just do. And, and that's just through years of trial and error and awareness and, and paying attention to what works and what doesn't. And if you're trying to take care of your body, whether you're an athlete or someone in just sort of general fitness, but you want to have good musculoskeletal health, like start paying attention to what works and what doesn't, what feels good and what doesn't. Um, but also understand that, you know, if you are trying to make a, a significant change in your, in your balance, your stability or motor control, whatever you, you want to call it, or your mobility, it it's not a light switch, right? It, it really, what it is, it's a process that's going to take time. But I think the most important thing is the buy-in from the individual fully understanding like the path and why, why we're taking this approach, this slow and steady approach, because, you know, I think what a lot of coaches do, and I see this so many times is they see mobility restrictions and then they do so much mobility work that they kind of destabilize the system and they actually get a little bit weaker. Um, and, and look, you know, mobility is, is great. But 
prescriptive mobility is really where it's at, right? Getting getting to be a sort of the individual that could diagnostic things. That's where the sweet spot happens. So yeah, being able to get someone really mobile is just a piece of the puzzle. But what if they're already mobile and you don't know how to do that, right? What if you have the hypermobile, uh, you know, gymnast that is is just incredibly flexible, um, and you know they're they're very very high on the biting scale. What's your strategy then? Mobility, you're going to do more stretching for the person that can, you know, basically be in Cirque du Soleil. So you need to be able to understand, coach, and train both, and put it together in a comprehensive plan. So the individuals that you're working with, um, you know, are, are going to move in the right direction. But it's like, I don't even understand how someone can argue that that's not a good philosophical approach. Like, look, I have, my ankles are absolute trash from soccer. I've blown the ligaments out of them. I would kill for some more stability in those ankles. And the only way it's going to happen is with a surgeon, right? So, you know, I understand the sentiment like, yeah, but, but, but it's just, it's really just people trying to act like they're smart, but look, I mean, yeah, trust me yeah. when you have injuries and you know what joints shouldn't do, I think you appreciate the mobility and the stability continuum a little bit differently, especially when joints, uh, are pushed beyond their limits. You really, you'll really appreciate hundred percent two, two or three things. Um, mobility problems are consistent. It's going to look the same loaded, unloaded, passive, active Mo mobility. Con mobility problems are consistent. I can't touch my toes in standing. I can't touch my toes seated. Um, doesn't matter if I take one leg out of the picture or, you know, whatever. I can't touch my toes. Um, whereas stability problems are inconsistent. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people that have stability or motor control problems, they, they've got a moving target in their body, right? They get a little sore here. And then it moves someplace else. And then, you know, it's, it's just, it seems to be this inconsistent thing that doesn't make sense. <clears throat> Whereas if you had a baseline and the ability to look at how somebody's moving, you'll, you'll start to see that you'll, you'll see the inconsistency. You can identify it quicker as a motor control issue, and you can start giving that person the stability work they need. Yeah. Um, so I, I think that, uh, coming back to a framework, um, Airline pilots, some of the most highly trained individuals on the planet um, who handle, I mean, think about these, uh, the, that Alaskan Airlines, um, you the know, door seven door pops off 16,000 feet and um, they have to make an emergency landing. Uh, 15 year anniversary of the miracle in the Hudson just happened. So Sully and, and his co-pilot, they ran the engine restart checklist three times while trying to find an alternate landing to putting it in the Hudson before finally deciding to put it in the Hudson. It's about a minute and a half that they had to do that. They ran the engine restart checklist three times. These are talented, highly trained people and they use checklists. Does the checklist answer all the problems? No, but it's a baseline. It gives them framework to be smart with. Um, so I, I think that uh, the, the joint by joint approach is something that uh, is elegant in its simplicity. Mm -hmm. um, but as uh, most elegantly simple things, there are complex layers uh, to it uh, that you can dive into. And so I, I think that um, I'm a fan of it. Uh, I think it gives a great framework. And to the hypermobile person, hypermobile individuals, um, we're seeing more of that. 
I, I think uh, kids are, they're not playing as much. They're not um, really setting some of their foundational um, strength and, and movement skill uh, when they're, when they're younger. And so I think we're starting to see a bit more uh, hypermobility uh, come through the, through the population. And like from a pure FMS perspective, if I run an FMS on somebody and they get threes on leg raise and shoulder, I start thinking we might have some hypermobility going on here. And so I'll run a Biton um, and, you know, take a look at how they move. Biton scale takes about 30 seconds to run. Um, it, it's super easy. Doesn't mean you're diagnosing off of it. It means it's me just, it. <laughs> it's anybody can learn to take a blood pressure. Yeah. Doesn't make you a cardiologist. Right. Um, so learning how to look at somebody's movement and do a Biton scale doesn't make you a movement therapist. It means you can see if somebody can touch their thumb to their forearm. Um, and then if you start finding those things and you're greater than a five out of nine on a, on a Biton, you should probably consult with somebody who's good at working with that. And okay. so finding that right solution and that person who has the hypermobility, it, um, the, you know, just because you got hypermobile elbows, your elbows hyperextend a little bit, doesn't mean you're hypermobile. Maybe you just have a little extra mobility at your elbows. Um, there's a, there's a different category that we're talking about here. And then, boy, you get into somebody that actually has one of the Eller Danlos, uh, presentations and you can yeah. get into some really, uh, really challenging, really, um, really funky stuff. Um, so I, I think having some education there is good. And I still come back to the joint by joint approach, even when I'm working with those, with those folks. Um, so, um, it's elegant, it's simple. Um, and it, and it gives a really, and it, it's something that I could, I could take my student who knows nothing about training, athletic training, whatever, they don't know their anatomy, but I can walk them through that and get them to understand why I'm addressing their ankle mobility when they're complaining about a shoulder problem. Yeah. It, it, it's a, it's elegant. Yeah. And, and again, to just to sort of uh, put a bow on it, you know, a, a perfect example of ankle opposite shoulder is if someone that, you know, really rolls their ankle and uh, really injures himself and it changes their gait, it changes the way that they load the opposing side. Um, and if you've ever had a pretty significant injury on one side, you're going to notice that like you just get randomly sore on the opposite side of your body in a bunch of random places. And that's kind of the beginning of that process. I'm not saying it's going to stick around. It may or may not. Now, a lot of the times it just goes back to normal, which is what we call re returning to function. But a lot of other times it just heals, but it does not return back to function. And those are two different things. So, um, you know, we, we've talked a lot about uh, this and, and I'm sure that we could dig a little bit deeper, but um, it's a philosophical approach. It's not diagnostic. It's not prescriptive. But if you step back and, and just think about it from a common sense standpoint, it makes pretty good sense. Yep. And, and for me, I was, I was reviewing the SFMA level one course, um, and I'd, I'd completed that as part of my CEUs and, um, boy, Greg Rose. I mean, every time I listen to that guy, I, I walk away, uh, both better educated and feeling worse about myself, uh, because he's yeah. really smart and, you know, he just, just very quickly, you know, nails down that one plane of movement versus three planes of movement conversation and and why that sets the framework for the joint by joint approach, and um, I I uh, I like it. I like it a lot. Absolutely. Well, 
That was a good one, man. That was fun. That was fun. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, that's it. The joint by joint approach to training, uh, sort of, uh, ripped apart by Brett and I. So guys, thank you so much. We're in season four. It's, it's, it's crazy to think that we've been doing this for, uh, for four years. Obviously season one was by myself. So we're having a lot of fun and, uh, we're looking forward to, um, you know, the upcoming episodes. So, uh, we appreciate you guys and we'll see you on the next episode. Hey everybody, coach Mike here. Thank you so much for your support. We truly appreciate it. If you could do us a huge favor, please give us a positive review on whatever platform you're listening to. And also, please share this with your friends, colleagues, teammates, and fitness enthusiasts. Thank you again for supporting the Minimum Effective Dose Podcast.